Welcome to the Last Call podcast. My name is Marissa Whitaker, and I'm the prevention educator at SUNY Cortland. And my name is Sarah McGowan. I'm the assistant director of student health and wellness at Onondaga Community College. Our jobs are to educate students about potential risks associated with substance use. We approach substance use from a neutral stance, and our episodes are rooted in public health with a focus on science and harm reduction. On today's episode, we're going to cover a handful of different things. It's a bit of a catch-all for campus policies um, and being a good bystander. So we're going to talk about maybe some of the lesser-known policies that you should be aware of um, and then really focus a good chunk of this episode on our Good Samaritan policy. Absolutely. And I, I think it's also important to know that um, on any college campus, you can always find a copy of your student code of conduct either on the website or you can always request a paper copy so that you can't say you didn't know um, this was a rule. So in, in these cases, although you don't know the policy, uh, ignorance is not bliss and you can still be held responsible for policies that you don't know about. So let's hop into it with our first policy on both of our campuses is the social host ordinance. What this is, is if your name is on the lease uh, to an off-campus housing, you can be held criminally responsible for hosting or providing an environment where underage drinking takes place. Um, It's not just about providing alcohol, but you're providing a place where people can drink. Um, So whether you're over 21, whether you're under 21, as long as underage drinking can occur um, on your residence, you can be held responsible for that. I think it's also important to know, Maris, that um, if you are 21 or older and you're providing alcohol to someone under 21, you could be held responsible for endangering the welfare of a minor. So that's a big one. You might think like, hey, it's just a party, not a big deal. But that's a charge that can actually stick with you and potentially ruin your chances for future employment if you are convicted. Yeah, so many people think, well, cool, I'm living off campus. It's not going to be UPD and not my RA. Well, yeah, it's going to be like the city police with, you know, misdemeanor violations. I think Tumorous just wanted to throw it in there too. It's important to know that if you live in an off-campus residence, you should be aware of noise ordinances. Um, There are towns and villages and cities that have a certain time when you have to quote unquote be quiet by. So if you're living in one of those places and you think it's cool to have, you know, a banging party at midnight, the chances that you're going to have a noise violation are very high. And then moving forward, you know, you're you're on the radar if you have other parties after that. Yes. Off campus does not mean under the radar. Something else that is not off the radar are open container tickets. So in New York State, it's illegal to drink or have an open container in a public place. We are not living in New Orleans. This is not an open container city. So let's take a second to talk about what counts as open container. So this is not an exhaustive list, but crossing the street, waiting for someone on the sidewalk, drinking from your water bottle on the way to the bar with your hot pink like crystal light. This isn't, that's not a Poland Springs. Law enforcement can tell real easily if alcohol is in, is in that cup. Also, being in a car, open container, even as a passenger or in a parked car. Even if the vehicle isn't in motion, it's important to know you still can't consume in any vehicle. That goes for cannabis too. Doesn't matter if you're the passenger, it doesn't matter if you're in the back seat, alcohol or cannabis, you can't consume that in a car. Absolutely. Um, you brought up a, a lot of really great off-campus points, Maris, and now I think it's important that we touch on some on-campus rules. 
one of the main things that I see um, on my campus a lot is smoke alarm tampering. So it doesn't matter what you're tampering with your smoke alarm with. If it's a pizza box, t-shirt, plastic bag, sock, you still can't put anything on your smoke detector. So the reason why we take this so seriously is because if you tamper with your smoke detector, even if you take it down, you're taking the chance that the next time that you need that smoke detector to actually work in case of a real fire or real, you know, smoking hazard, it's not going to work next time. Your smoke detector is there for a reason. So please do not tamper with it. Probably not fooling anyone when there's a sock around that. Like what? I mean, I'm just trying to think of any excuse that's feasible. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Another huge... But fake IDs. So um, you can't have a fake ID. So even if it's your older sister, if it's your own picture, you know, if it's an ID that you paid for it to have made, um, you cannot have a fake ID. So there's some pretty significant penalties that could come along with having a fake ID um, that range from, you know, violation level to even misdemeanor level. So that's really important to kind of keep in mind. But another one of the most violated policies that I see quite a bit is drinking games or drinking game equipment. So what do we mean when we say this, Marissa? So, um, yeah, so any drinking games, anything that can kind of facilitate binge drinking. So what we mean by that, anytime that there's like a game of chance, drinking games, contests, any other activity that could like induce or encourage, um, ultimately resulting in the rapid consumption of alcohol, that's prohibited. So beer pong, flip cup, funnels, things like that. Anything that's going to encourage binge drinking is prohibited. Um, and something else I want to talk about too, Sarah, when you bring up the fake IDs. So aside from the, you know, the legal ramifications that you could face by obtaining someone else's ID or a fake ID of you. Um, if you're ordering this online um, from another country or just from any outside agency, um, providing your actual address and your information in your face, you're just giving information to somebody um, who you probably don't trust. So keep that in mind when getting a fake ID. It's not just about being able to, you know, score alcohol, but like what are the after effects of having that? Now somebody has your identification in your face. Something else that's a policy, and you know, this has been on the SUNY Cortland campus for a while, but this is new for your campus, Sarah, um, that we are both now on smoke-free campuses. So uh, that includes tobacco, cannabis, anything vapable, chewing tobacco. Um, that's not allowed on, our, on campuses. It's tough sometimes, especially you know, thinking about people who are regular smokers, they, they feel like they should have a place where they're allowed to consume their tobacco products. Um, and unfortunately, on Smoke Creek campuses, there is no no safe place, if you will. So the best thing to do is just go off campus. Um, and if you, you know, consume tobacco products to do it there, even e-cigarettes, I think that's, some, that's something that has been kind of increasing in usage over the last couple of years. And just because you think no one smells it doesn't mean that you can't use it. So, you know, I've seen students use in our student lounge and take a quick puff of, off of their e-cigarette. You're not allowed to have it in any on-campus building, on or even off, um, even outside of campus. So that's important. Just because someone doesn't see you doesn't mean that it's allowed. Yeah, and a friendly heads up, you probably aren't as discreet as you think you're being. I don't know, I'm, all these people like suckling on their like hoodie sweatshirts. We see that you have your jewel. You're not as discreet as you might think you're being. And there's one last thing that we want to briefly touch upon. And, you know, we really, you could devote a whole episode to talking about hazing. 
hazing is not allowed. Um, there is an extensive explanation in your campus's code of conduct, but generally speaking, if you have to do something dangerous or degrading to be part of a group, that's hazing. If you're put in an uncomfortable situation and something you don't want to do, you know, to be part of something else, there's a whole spectrum of what is considered hazing behavior. Hazing is not allowed on either of our campuses for athletic clubs, social clubs, um, cultural clubs, any sort of club, um, not allowed. I think it's important to know too, Marissa, and you kind of touched on this, but it's not just for, for fraternities and sororities that haze. It's also, you know, sports teams. It's other types of clubs that can do hazing type of activities because they want to make you feel like you're, you know, you've worked your way into this important group. So it's important to know it's not just always fraternities and sororities, but it can be sports teams and other groups as well. Exactly. So now let's jump into the bulk of this episode. We really wanted to dedicate a lot of time and attention to talking about our Good Samaritan policies. So whether you're on a SUNY Cortland campus, OCC campus, this is a SUNY-wide policy. So this applies everywhere. Um, to briefly explain what this is, is that, you know, misuse of alcohol and drugs can create life-threatening situations for people that require a fast response from emergency services. We want to make sure those people in need get help. And again, this is a New York state law, so it's not dependent on your campus having a policy. It's dependent on you live in New York state. So this applies everywhere in New York state. Yes. And so that means even off campus, this counts then, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Another caveat is that this doesn't give absolute immunity, um, but student conduct does work with students to mitigate or to reduce sanctions um, if you've summoned help for yourself or for somebody else. So you might have to have a meeting with your alcohol and other drug educator. You might have to talk to student conduct or a campus representative, um, but we really work with students because we want people to call for help. So we work very hard on our campuses to remove those barriers um, so there's no excuse not to call for help for somebody. No, absolutely. And so um, when when we're saying the word life-threatening, I think it's also really important to know that you don't have to be a doctor. So whether it's, you know, a cannabis-induced overdose or an alcohol-induced overdose or your friend maybe just forgot to eat that day and they can't stop throwing up, you don't have to be a doctor and no one is going to say you shouldn't have called because in that situation, you felt that it was you know, a scary enough situation for you to have to call for outside help. So that's really important. And it's also important to know that absolute immunity doesn't happen if you're not the one who intervenes. So if it's you and your best friend went out for a night on the town drinking, your best friend is puking in the bathroom. If your RA walks in and sees them puking and they're the ones that have to call 911 when you could have called in that situation, a lot of the time those types of situations are the ones where you know, maybe that absolute immunity doesn't necessarily fall into place. So let's talk a little bit um, about when we should intervene for someone. So there's this acronym that's used a lot in the prevention world, PUBS, P-U-B-S. Think about this. Um, just as Sarah said, you don't need to be a doctor to make these diagnoses, but here are some things that each person should look for. So the P, puking while passed out. If somebody um, is you know, overtly intoxicated and they're getting sick while they're also passed out, they might need some aid for that. If someone is unresponsive, the you to pinching or shaking, that's also a cause for concern. What about the B, Sarah? What is that? 
B is for breathing is slow, irregular, or has stopped. So um, a way that you can tell if someone is breathing or not is to kind of put your, your hand underneath someone's nose. Again, you don't have to be a doctor, but it should be pretty obvious if their chest isn't rising and falling with breath or if you don't kind of feel feel that breath on your And so the last one, S, skin, is if someone's skin is cold, blue, or clammy. Now, a person doesn't need to meet all of this criteria. It's not a checklist. <laughs> any, yeah, any of these um, things individually could absolutely make for a life-threatening uh, situation. So yes. you said, Maris, it doesn't have to be all of them. It doesn't even have to be more than one, you know, for you to think that it's a serious enough situation. Right. If my skin is blue, it doesn't matter if I'm throwing up or not. Like, Y'all should be calling. So let's kind of talk about some of the ways we can intervene. Okay, so we see this person. Um, now what do I do? So rule, first and foremost, don't leave an unconscious person alone. Real important. They're not going to sleep it off. But someone's BAC can still rise even if they're asleep. So you might fall asleep with 0.12. But if you've been drinking right up until that, your blood alcohol content, that's still going to rise despite the fact that you're passed out. What about if someone's vomiting, Sarah? Like then, then what happens? Absolutely. So it's really important to keep them awake or sitting up. So if you have to lay them down, it's important that you put them on their side. And I don't know um, how many people are familiar with the rescue position, but it's kind of like when you cross your arms over your chest so that the person doesn't fall over or roll over onto their front. Going back to one thing you said, Maris, I think that that's kind of a, a really awful misconception that we hear about a lot is that, you know, if you put someone to sleep, they'll sleep it off and they'll be fine in the morning. But those are the types of situations that can actually cause, you know, death when you just let someone sleep it off. So, you know, we're not trying to be scare tactic-y, but it is really important to know that if someone consumed a lot, that going to sleep isn't necessarily the best option in, in most of these situations. Something that everyone can really pause to remember is not to be afraid to get help. I think for a lot of people, a big barrier is I don't want my roommate. I don't want my friend. I don't want them to be mad at me because I called for help. I'd rather have a friend who was mad at me the next day than what the alternative to that situation could be. So what does that look like to get help? You know, once you've made the decision, if you're on campus, you can call your RA, you can call your RHD, your campus police, and in an emergency, call 911. What happens if someone's off campus, Sarah? What should you do? Um, I would say call 911. That would be the number one thing. I think a situation that, you know, we're seeing is cannabis overdoses. So whether it's a concentrate that they've never used before or whether it's edibles where they consume too much, those are situations that can get really scary. And no, you're not going to die from a cannabis overdose, but you can get to a point where your anxiety is skyrocketed, your heart rate is high, and you feel like it's a medical emergency. Again, you don't have to be a doctor. If you feel that it's serious enough, never, never be afraid to call. Yeah. And when would you want someone to intervene on your behalf? So calling if you see someone in a residence hall, um, in a hallway, um, you know, that would count as good Samaritan calling for them. Um, what are some other examples that you can think of, Sarah, that like would count as a good Samaritan? And this is not an exhaustive list. Absolutely. Um, if you're, you know, having a party on campus and things get a little out of control. Um, and it's also important to know that Good Samaritan also covers 
drug things unless you have felony level amount. Um, if the police walk in and it's you know a dealing operation, then we might be talking about something different. But if it's small under misdemeanor level amounts of drugs, the police are the most worried about getting whoever needs that life-saving help in that situation, the help that they need. And even if you're at a party underage drinking, people there aren't gonna get in trouble what you will get in trouble for is if you don't call for help and then the police go back and they find out that you were there, you could have called to save someone's life, you chose not to do so. And we're talking a lot about the legal aspects, but just thinking on kind of a bit of a, a moral, ethical level, if I knew I could have called for somebody and I didn't and the outcome was not a good outcome, just knowing that you could have called for help but didn't, like I referenced before, I'd rather have someone who was mad at me because they were awake and able to be mad at me than what the alternative could be. What I always tell people is it's better to try than not do anything. Yeah. So we just went over extensively all of the ways that you can intervene. Is there anything that you want to add, Sarah? Anything that maybe uh, that I didn't think to talk about? Absolutely, Maris. Um, So the last thing that I just wanted to quickly touch on is the SUNY drug and alcohol amnesty policy. So it's along very similar lines of Good Samaritan, um, but in situations where um, sexual violence, domestic violence, relationship violence is occurring, um, a lot of the people are reluctant to come forward anyway, but people who are engaging in, you know, drug or alcohol activity are even less likely to come forward because they're worried that they're going to get in trouble for engaging in underage drinking or drug use, even if it happened, you know, in the commission of a crime. So if drug or alcohol use does occur in those types of situations, the drug and alcohol amnesty policy is here because we're more worried about getting um, the person who potentially wants to report or wants to get help in that situation, the help that they need compared to maybe getting them in trouble for that drug or alcohol use in that situation. We covered a lot of heavy stuff here at the end um, about how to intervene, when to intervene. Um, let's kind of end the episode on a good note. What are some of the positives of intervening in these cases? I mean, I think first and foremost, you could have saved a life. I think that's an obvious pro for calling to get help for somebody. Um, what else? You know, what are the good things about being a good bystander? Um, we did talk a little bit about it not being full immunity when it comes to student conduct. Yes, you might have to face an educational sanction of a meeting, but hopefully you learn a little bit from that meeting and learn what you can do differently next time. Exactly. And just what you said, if the worst case scenario is you have to meet with one of us, I think that's a much better outcome than not getting help for yourself or for somebody else. So again, we try to remove the barriers and increase all of the reasons to call for help for somebody. That wraps up the end of this episode. We hope that you learned something about campus policies and being a good bystander. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye.